Today's sermon text is Matthew seven twenty-one to 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, happy summer. Hope you're enjoying the boiling temperatures outside and the, maybe the, the, the break we've got in the last 24 hours. Um, hopefully it won't be boiling here today, um, metaphorically or literally. Um, we've been, we've, we're taking a couple of weeks out of our current teaching series on the book of Philippians. And we are redirecting ourselves just for a couple of weeks to think about something that we all need to think about. And uh, there are times in the public discourse, in politics, that things are said and behaviors are followed that demand a response, that demand that something is said. Um, Jesus is the ruler over this whole world. He is the ruler over the whole cosmos. He has authority over every aspect of our lives. So when we say things and sing things, these grand songs of, uh, I will stand with my hands lifted high and declare that Jesus is my, you know, these songs with these, these amazing lyrics What we are saying is that Jesus has authority over everything that I do with my life, everything, every part of my life. I don't have a right to think the way I want to think or behave the way I want to behave outside of Jesus' rule in my life. I don't have that right. I gave up that right willingly when the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins. Many of you did the same thing. You gave up your rights to live your way. But as I mentioned last week, there are times that we behave in a certain way and talk in such a way that it demands that we remember what Jesus has to say about this. And if you remember, if you happened to be here last week, I started off by expressing to you how grieved I was over the way certain people, both in our congregation and outside of it, have dialogued with one another over some very ugly issues in recent weeks. Issues of race, issues of politics and presidency, issues of uh, 
these issues that are just boiling over in our society right now, many of us have talked in a way and behaved in a way that has alienated one another, that has hurt one another. I've, I've seen relationships in the last few weeks come to an end over these situations, over these issues. And so because of that, I feel pastorally I must speak into these issues. Now, I'm not going to be getting into... Uh, the minutia of politics and RNC, DNC, and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm here to talk about today. I'm talking about the way that we as the body of Jesus love one another and serve one another and understand one another in the spirit when hairy, thorny, tough topics emerge. How do we treat one another? How charitably do we interact with one another? That, my friend, that alone says volumes about the quality of our faith and our relationship with Jesus, the way we handle these situations. So just for, uh, for the sake of a, a brief review, a brief review, I started off last week in Matthew chapter 4 and 5, and I talked about how Jesus, when he heard that John the Baptist was in prison, After Jesus came out of being tempted in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, the Holy Spirit led him there after he was baptized. Jesus was tempted there by Satan three times. The Holy Spirit led him there to test him. Jesus emerges from the wilderness, having overcome Satan in that situation. And he hears that John the Baptist is in prison. And then he begins officially his public ministry to Israel. And his first sermon that he preaches wasn't even his own. He preached John the Baptist's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a good message. So if it's a good message, it should be repeated. And Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you remember, we talked about what repentance is. Repentance is acknowledging that the way that we live is adversarial to God's way. And if you're intellectually honest, you'll admit that God's way is always better than our ways, right? And so when the Bible declares that we should repent, what it's telling us is that we must admit, we must acknowledge that every way that we live in our life is adversarial to God's way and we should embrace the kingdom of God. And that word kingdom simply means authority. Rule. We embrace the rule and authority of God in our lives. He rules us. He is our king. That's why the earliest Christian creed was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. He rules everything. He rules us. He rules us. If if you're submitted to him. And then he still rules you. So I just hope you'll admit that. Um, So he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this begs the question, what does a repentant life look like? Is it having an experience at the end of a church service where you say a prayer and tears are streaming down your cheeks and you feel the the sense of the presence of God and you declare, God, I give you my all. I'm going to live for you. I'm yours. Is that all that repentance is? I don't think it is. 
I don't think that repentance necessarily is that. It can include that. But repentance looks like something. And then that's why the the writer of this gospel, Matthew, in the next chapter begins to describe what a repentant life looks like. What does a person look like who claims that I am submitted to Jesus Christ as my Lord? What does that person look like? And it's in this context that Matthew recalls one of Jesus' sermons where Jesus says this to all who were following him in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Listen to this like you've never heard it before. Seeing the crowds, the same crowds that he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Not just the twelve, but hundreds, maybe thousands, we don't know, came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying this, blessed. This is what the blessed life looks like, Jesus says. Jesus does not view this as necessarily spanking people or disciplining them and correcting them. Is he correcting them? Yes, because we need to repent. But Jesus says, with the call of repentance, I am giving you a blessing that you cannot even fathom, if you could just see it. And he says this, this is what the repentant life looks like. Blessed are are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and lists all of these virtues that identify people who are in Jesus. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are not prideful and cocky and self-righteous and pharisaical and judgmental, but those who are see themselves and their own neediness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are people who are sad. People who are sad. There's been a lot of sadness in our world the last few weeks. Jesus wants you to know that the kingdom is for people just like you. Blessed are people who are sad over institutional racism, over the assassination of law enforcement officers, over the the killing of innocents at a Bastille celebration in France, over teenagers being shot in a Munich mall. Blessed are the people who mourn over the brokenness of our world. Blessed are you, Jesus says. There's a better world for you that's coming. He says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the people who are meek. And he says, these are the people who are going to get it all in the end. Not the militant, not the mean-spirited. The meek. The meek. And if you want further explanation of that, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. Meekness does not mean that you are not active. Meekness is about our poise, our posture. When we hunger for justice and mercy and righteousness and goodness in our world. Meekness is our heart's posture. It's humility. It's not passivity. It's just humility. 
It doesn't opt for the mean ways to make things change in our world. The ugly ways, the violent ways, the vicious ways, the passive-aggressive ways. This is not what followers of Jesus look like who want to see change in our world. They are meek. They are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And we talked about last week how righteousness is a two-sided coin in the kingdom. On one side, there's holiness. On the other side, there's justice. It's all through our scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Holiness and justice. It's not one or the other. It's both. And so when the Bible says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're talking about blessed are those who hunger for goodness and righteousness to manifest in our world. Because when it doesn't, evil manifests. And that's when we have to have a voice regarding justice, when there is evil, when there is wrong. Blessed are the merciful, the merciful. It's interesting, he chases the hunger for justice with mercy. Because the people that we are called to give mercy to are not the ones we want to give mercy to. We never want to give mercy. Mercy is counterintuitive. The people who have transgressed us, we want to give judgment to, retaliation, vindication. We want to do those things. But Jesus says, the people who follow me, who look like me, they're the ones who give mercy to people who have transgressed them. This is what that looks like. And he goes on to talk about the pure in heart, how they're blessed. The peacemakers, how they're blessed. Not the drama makers, not the anger makers, not the fear mongers. Not the conspiracy theorists. The peacemakers. Calling one another to set our mind and our hearts on the things that are solid and cannot be moved. Jesus is Lord, I don't know what's going to happen in November, but Jesus is Lord. I don't know what's going to happen in November four years from now when we're all mad again. (laughs) Jesus is Lord. In eight years when we're saying the future of America depends on this election, Jesus is Lord. I'm wondering when we're going to stop being naive about these things, when we're going to stop believing that a worldly king can save us. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those. There are some of you who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. There are those of you in this room, and and we all suffer, all of us do. We all experience ridicule in our lives. But there is a particular group of people in our little world who have decided, I'm going to turn down the noise and turn up my heart. And I'm going to listen with my heart rather than be judgmental. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to empathize. And you, some of you, have been ridiculed by Pharisees in the church. You've been ridiculed. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you. This is what it looks like To be a Jesus person. This is what it looks like. How in the world do we pull that off? There's an assumption under this. Now here's part two of the message here. Got four parts. Part two. There's an assumption here that undergirds everything that Jesus says. And that assumption is this. 
that the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to the beauty of the truth I just discussed. Followers of Jesus will see everything in Matthew 5, 1 through 10 as lovely and noble. Followers of Jesus. Only followers of Jesus can see that. Only people whom has, who, have, who have been invaded by the Holy Spirit can see mercy and peacemaking and meekness as more beautiful than meanness. than launching Facebook grenades. Only people who have, whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit see peacemaking, persecution, hungering for justice, mourning for the brokenness of our world, hungering for righteousness, mercy, all these things. Only people who have had their eyes opened by the Spirit see that as lovely. If you don't see that as lovely, that's where we've got to start. And that's where I challenge you, you sitting in that chair, do you see these things as lovely? The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that we should examine ourselves to see if we're actually in the faith. It's easy to get into the faith in America. Pray the prayer. My question is, has your heart been converted such that when you hear those beatitudes, that you see those things as lovely? Now, you might be thinking, goodness, Chris, I, I, see, the, I see the goodness of those things, but I stink at living by them. And so I feel a lot of guilt and shame around that. Okay, so let's stop, hit pause for a second, and let's begin to discern and separate our emotions. It's one thing to feel shame because you can't live up to something. Okay, that's one category. The other category is, do you see those things, regardless of your success or failure, do you see those things, those virtues as beautiful? Forget your story. Forget how good you are at it or how terrible you are at it. And I think if you ask any follower of Jesus, you know, I don't think any follower of Jesus would say, yeah, I kick butt at mercy. <laughs> I don't know anybody that would say that. I am amazing at peacemaking. I'm the best. I'm just, I'm awesome. I am awesome. When it comes to meekness, <laughs> I don't know anybody better than me. I am so, so meek. Can you tell? You know. <laughs> so there needs to be an element of humility. I'm asking you simply, do you acknowledge those things as lovely and noble? Only the Spirit can open your eyes to that. Only the Spirit can. This is the assumption that Jesus is operating under as he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. He knows there are two kinds of people who are sitting in front of him. People whose eyes have been opened and people who have deaf ears. And he is letting the Spirit do his work when he teaches and preaches. Spirit, you do your thing. You do it, Spirit. This is why in like the book of John, just a couple of examples here of Jesus' total dependence on the Spirit, that the Spirit is the one who converts our hearts, 
who calls our hearts to see forgiveness and mercy and love and patience, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those fruits of the Spirit come from the Spirit. And so like in John chapter 3, when a religious figure appears to Jesus one evening, one night, a man named Nicodemus, he says, Jesus, we, we know that the things that you do are, it's, it's inarguable. I mean, obviously this is from God, but we, we got some questions. And Jesus just, just, just interrupts him, cuts him off, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you've got to hear that not like a southern evangelical. Because to us, born again is the same as praying a prayer. When Jesus says born again, he is literally talking about a mystical, ecstatic phenomenon that takes place in a person's life where literally the condition of their heart is changed from death to life. He says, you can't see the kingdom unless you've been born again. And then Nicodemus said to him in, in John 3, 4, how can a man be born when he's old? He's talking about himself. I'm an old dude. How, does, how am I going to pull that off? And that's the response that we should all have with the kingdom of God. I can't do this. I need something miraculous to happen in my soul because I'm hopeless without God intervening, intervening in my life. I'm hopeless. We all need to feel that. That is the basis of blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God that which is born of the flesh is flesh, like we were born, our natural birth. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, a new kind of birth, a new kind of person. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says. Don't, don't, don't marvel at this. And this is how he backs that up. It was something really strange. Don't marvel about that. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. What? And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, we have no control over this. The Spirit, we can sense Him, we can see evidences of His presence, but we don't control Him. We need the Spirit to invade our lives and change us. That's what it means to be born again. Jesus is operating under this assumption when he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's not saying white knuckle it, grit your teeth, mm, try real hard to be merciful. But I hate that person so much. <laughs> if you only knew my background and my story, Jesus is operating under the assumption that the only people who can live this are people who have been compelled by the Spirit to embrace Jesus. 
People who know how to connect the dots between I stand with arms high and heart surrendered to I stand in forgiveness. We've, our anthems have to become lifestyle. I stand with arms high and heart wide open as a meek person now. I reject meanness and gossip. That's what it means to stand. When you stand for Jesus, it doesn't just mean vote for the right person. It means cultivate by the Spirit these virtues in your life. And the only people who can do that are people born of the Spirit. Those are the only people who can do it. I love what Jesus says in John 6, 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Wow, that's profound. No one can even come to me unless God draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. I will resurrect this person. I will resurrect this person. It is written in the prophets. And they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And they will be taught by God. Now, some people say, you know, I don't do the church thing because the Bible says that, you know, people who are really born again are taught by God. I don't need a man or a woman teaching me. And, of course, they get that from books written by people. (laughs) Jesus is not saying we don't need people to teach us. Otherwise, why would he have sent the disciples into the world to teach What he's saying is, is that something miraculous happens in a person's heart who has been born again. The Holy Spirit is guiding his heart, her heart, shaping his heart, her heart, to look like Jesus' heart. Now, what things does the Holy Spirit use? A lot of things. The Spirit in your life, the teaching of God's Word, studying God's word alone, the community of believers who encourage you and shape you and and provoke you to righteousness, all those things. But that is all God using that to transform you. No person, no preacher, no teacher can change you. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. So this is the assumption that Jesus is operating under. So let me give you an example as we go back to the Sermon on the Mount of what this looks like. So if you would, go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to talk about one little section in the Sermon on the Mount, part 3. We're going to talk about anger. The subject that may give most people in this room the most shame. Anger. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Remember, Jesus is not punishing people right now. Jesus is giving people a gift He is inviting people to live under his authority and his rule. This is the good life, Jesus is saying. Live under me. You've got to change. You've got to admit that you're wrong. You need to repent. But this isn't bad news. This is good news. He is saying you do not have to be controlled by anger and rage anymore. You don't have to be controlled by lust. 
You don't have to be controlled by envy and materialism. You don't have to do that anymore. And so Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. He's quoting the Old Testament here. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. An earthly form of judgment in our world. This is where church discipline should be a piece in our, community, our church communities. We should talk to people and bring this up with people when they're saying ugly things to each other. Nobody wants to do that because that will scare people away. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And the implication is, is that you are an insulting person and you don't ever repent. You're going to be judged. And so even when we're right about something, we should never insult people. Just because we're right doesn't mean it's okay to be ugly. I'm saying that because I know we always think we're right. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa. Can you hear Jesus saying the echo of hunger and thirst for righteousness here? Can you hear the echo of meekness? If you're that angry with someone and you want to call them a fool, they've probably done something to hurt you. And Jesus says, that's not the way. That's not my way. That's not my way. Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. I don't want your worship. Don't sing to me. Don't pray. It's crazy how rarely this stuff is taught. First, be reconciled to your brother. Do you hear the echo of being a peacemaker there? Being a peacemaker. I want to ask you something. Just in this room, how many people in this room, don't answer me out loud, are carrying a grudge against someone here? I stand with arms high and heart wide open in awe of the one who gave himself for me, or however it goes. I know, I'm terrible with lyrics. Um, what does that look like with a grudge? What do you do? This. If you are born again by the Spirit, even though that is hard and nobody wants to do this, nobody does. I don't want to do this. I want to be happy. Jesus says... Do not worship. Go talk to that person and reconcile that relationship. That's, man, this is basic Christianity, guys. This isn't some sophisticated new level of Christianity that Jesus is rolling out here. This is basic Christianity. These are people who have no theological training whatsoever. They didn't grow up in the evangelical church for the last 30 years. They've not, they didn't grow up in Sunday school. These are people who are as virgin as you can get spiritually. And Jesus is saying, okay, here's what it looks like to follow me. Let me start with the basics. Anger. Here's how you handle anger. 
It's tough, man. Is it any wonder that in this same sermon, Jesus describes the way of the kingdom of God as a narrow path and not a broad path? Is it any wonder Jesus does that? Is it any wonder? I know for a fact that's probably not going to get retweeted, the stuff I'm saying right now. Because it's not fun. But this is as basic Jesus as you can get. You're not going to get any more fundamental Jesus than this. What is this saying to us? That God really cares about how we treat one another more than he cares about how we do church services. God really cares about that stuff. Man, that's heavy. This is how Jesus is basically saying, this is how to walk with God. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. He goes on and he has different, he samples different things about our lives. And he tells us how to handle those things. He talks about sexuality and lust in the next section. In the next section, he talks about marriage and divorce because Jesus is Lord over the way we do marriage. Jesus is Lord over that. He talks about integrity, keeping your word. Keeping your word. He talks about loving your enemies. And he talks about retaliation. He talks about this stuff. He's saying, this is what it looks like to be my disciple. If you're in, this is what you can expect. This is what you can expect. He talks about retaliation. He talks about justice and charity, caring for the poor. In Jesus' main sermon on the Christian life, he talks about caring for the poor. He talks about prayer and fasting because this is not just about doing those things. It is about communing with God as well. We need to be abiding in Jesus. He says in the Gospel of John, abiding in Him. It's not just about doing stuff and overcoming anger. It's about abiding in Jesus, prayer and fasting. He goes on to talk about trusting, this is chapter 6, trusting God and materialism. He talks about that. He talks about that. He has something to say about our need for brand recognition, brand names, the latest things. He talks about that stuff. He talks about judging others in chapter 7, and then he finishes by talking about evaluating our own hearts rather than evaluating somebody else's heart. He says, judge yourself before you judge somebody else. He says, this is basic Christianity. You know, we've got this phrase that we often use. It's a metaphor that we use to describe the Christian faith. We call it walking with God. How long have you been walking with God, sister? Well, 27 years. I've been walking with Jesus, you know. He's talking about walking with him here. But here's how it works. It's walking with Jesus, and as you walk with Jesus, you're experiencing his grace. You see, here's what we want. When we're angry at someone, rather than go to them, we want to feel a sensation of grace that will give us courage and boldness and clarity of mind, then we'll go and address an issue with a brother or a sister. I think what the scriptures are teaching, and it's a little little, uh, cloudy here, but I think that what it's teaching is this. If you want to experience deepening grace, then engage these issues. I know you don't feel like you can bring that up with that sister because that's a really toxic relationship. But Jesus says, let me show you my grace. So humbly and meekly go talk to her. 
Let me fill that situation with my grace. So go to that brother who's hurt you, that person who has transgressed you, maybe greatly. Try to reconcile with that person. You can't control that person. Peter Scazzaro in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, says there's three people always doing something in those situations. There's you doing your job, there's God doing his job, and then there's that person doing his job or her job. You can't do that person's job or God's job, but you can do your job. And so you can engage God's grace, enter into the J-curve, if you were here a few weeks ago, and experience God's growing grace in your life regardless of how that conversation goes. The marriage may not be fixed. The relationship may not be restored. But you have walked into that muck and you're experiencing new revelations of God's grace. You're experiencing that. That's how you walk with Jesus. Jesus is saying, walk with me. Let me show you what it's like to carry you to the frontier of your faith. What's the song, Oceans, we love to sing as well that resonates with us so deeply? When God carries you, how does it go to Nace? When God carries you to the, uh, sorry, I know I'm putting you in the spot. Uh, when God, Spirit lead me, what is it again? Spirit lead me? Where my trust is with that borders. Isn't that beautiful? Spirit lead me where my trust is with that borders. Hallelujah, praise God. Okay, let me lead you to where your trust is with that borders. Go talk to that person that you hate. Ah, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. I don't want to talk to that person that I hate. I want to like, you know, I don't know, feel something. That's what I mean by trust you. You know, we're, we're you know, be on my borders and I'm butchering a song again. So a um, couple of closing thoughts, a couple of closing thoughts. Um, is this making sense? I feel like it kind of got cloudy at the end here. So just to, so when you read the Sermon on the Mount, just to be clear, when the Bible talks about what you do, if you've got a lust issue, if you've got an anger issue, It doesn't give you a quick fix. It's saying if you want to experience new depths of God's grace, engage that issue. Go there. So go to that broken relationship. Face the sin, the sexual brokenness in your life with courage. I know the Bible uses some pretty heavy terminology. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus is talking about the fury and the urgency that should come along with sexual sin because it will eat you up. And he loves you and he doesn't want you eaten up. It reminds me of the writer of Proverbs who's telling his son, son, please listen to your mother and I. And then he warns him against sexual sin. And he talks about the forbidden woman whose house, it's so enticing. He says, but it's like a staircase that descends into hell. Don't go there. He's saying that to his son because he loves him. And Jesus loves you. And he wants you to be free from sexual addiction and anger and rage. But you've got to engage this stuff, guys. And so that means if you've got an issue that you're struggling with, you need to have a conversation with somebody in our leadership team. Let us love you and encourage you and direct you. Let us lead you into maybe a a season of counseling or maybe a long season of counseling. Let us speak into your lives. We love you. We want to be here for you. Don't sit anymore in isolation and darkness. Face these things in your lives. If your marriage is not what it looks like on the outside, kill your pride, man. 
Let us help you. Let us help you. Let us serve you and encourage you. What have you got to lose besides your marriage? Let us. Closing thoughts. I want to give you a couple of warnings. One, I want you to recognize that we live in a post-Christian culture. Post-Christian. Here's what I mean by that. I know you're like, post-Christian? There's churches everywhere in this city. That's not what I mean by that. I'm talking about worldview. Our little corner of the world, the primary, the predominant worldview has been biblical Christianity. That's been dying rapidly for about 30 years. The predominant worldview now is not biblical Christianity. It's not. It's, some people call it postmodernism, but it's basically the ideology that I live for what makes me happy. I live for what makes me happy. That's why you can have lots of people still in church who when you bring up stuff like this, Jesus' words, they still go to church. There's some overlap there. But they reject the premise that they have to live by Jesus' word. I can't tell you how many times, how many times, if you've, if you've been a leader in a church, paid and unpaid, whatever, if you've ever tried to help someone through their sin, the vast majority of the time, it ends in sorrow. People reject your counsel. They reject your leadership. They're too dug in in their bitterness or their anger. And it's, there's nothing you can do, man. It's so pitiful. It's so pitiful. We live in a post-Christian culture. And so because of that, most of your friends who go to church are probably going to reject what I'm teaching you today. They're going to reject this. They will not support you in this. They will tell you, I don't care what your preacher says. If I got treated that way, this is what I would do. Head wagon and everything. And they will go to church and shout down hallelujah. Because we live in a post-Christian culture. We reject fundamentally the scripture having authority over our lives. Be ready for this. This is what it means to be persecuted for righteousness sake. If you choose to really follow Jesus, your lifestyle will be redonkulous to your friends. If you really do this, if you really do this. So what I'm teaching you is not normal in this culture. What I am teaching you today is not normal in churchianity, Memphis, Tennessee, with 3,000 churches, some people say. But what I'm teaching you is normal in the eyes of Jesus. So just keep that in mind because we are shaped by our surrounding culture. We're shaped by it. We're shaped by it. Second warning. Recognize that we live in a sensory culture. So we mustn't evaluate our faith primarily by what we feel. So if you're sitting here right now you're probably tempted to assess and evaluate sermons based on how much of an emotional stimulation that you feel. Man, that word was good, Chris. Woo! A lot of the time, not every time, and I, I, I always appreciate the, man, the, the slap in the back, the encouragement. I really do. I really do. 
But I want you to assess where that is coming from. What makes a good sermon? What is it? What is it? What makes a sermon that is good? Should it not be a sermon that helps us to do what Jesus is calling us to do? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so necessarily, a lot of good sermons aren't going to give you emotional stimulation. They're going to hurt. They may make you angry at times. Maybe right now, because it's almost noon, you're hangry. But whatever, at least something's happening. So we mustn't evaluate our faith according to what we feel. You may not leave this room today stoked about this message. But here's my question to you. In your heart of hearts is what I'm explaining in a very imperfect way. Is what I'm sharing with you lovely to you? Is what I'm sharing with you noble to you? If you can say yes to those questions, then you have at least in an infant form faith in Jesus. I want that. I want to follow him. He is my Lord. He is my leader. And that brings us to warning three. I want you to recognize that worship and discipleship requires effort. Because we live in a society that is shaping us, that is teaching us that to be a Christian means that God steps into your life and he just takes over. There was only one set of footprints in the sand. It was all him. I get that. Yes, it was. It was all him. If you've got that over your toilet, forgive me. I'm sorry. But uh, it's the best place. I've only seen that over a toilet. Uh, Pondering existential questions. Well, well, you know. Recognize that worship requires effort. I'm not saying you save yourself. That's not what I'm saying. It's Jesus. It's all Him. I am not saying, what, well, here's what I am saying, that it's not just about floating down a river. It's about responding to Him and obeying Him. And if you have the courage to ingest the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, something beautiful will happen. You will find yourself carried to the borders of your faith. I got it. Where you will experience grace like you've never tasted it before. My friends, what I just share with you is the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Follow him. Now, I can't end there. The big story part of me cannot say amen and start something else next week. This is why, partly why we're launching a midweek service beginning Wednesday night, August 17th. There's several reasons why we're doing this. One is some of our community groups are crazy. There's kids everywhere. And people can't have conversations without somebody, you know, without toilets blowing up and, and you know, food and people, you know, crazy stuff happening. 
And I've had a lot of people say over the last couple of years, man, I would really love an environment where we can just come experience God's word and be trained and go deeper. And so I'm like, hey, that's a good desire to have. <laughs> okay. And so I think we've probably had a blind spot in our leadership team. And I thank some of you for saying this to us. And we feel like we need to, we need to do this. We've also sort of uh, lightened our expectation in terms of community groups. I've had some leaders come to me and say, Chris, but what if people leave my community group and go to Wednesday night service? I'm like, okay. What's, what's to lose? Nothing's, we're not losing anything. There's no verse in the Bible that says that the best way to grow in Jesus is in a community group. But we, if you haven't noticed, we don't own a building. And so now God's given us an opportunity. Our friends over at Missio Day, just north of Poplar on White Station, just literally a, maybe a quarter mile north of, of Poplar, they've graciously allowed us to come in. And we're going to have a 13-week semester from August 17th to two weeks before Thanksgiving. And then we're not doing anything through the holidays. 13 weeks. And me and a teaching team are going to get together and we're going to teach you everything that I'm talking about today. How to do this. How to live in the Spirit. It's only 13 weeks. We've got nursery. We've got elementary child care. And we've got youth group, of course. Starts at 7. We're going to drink coffee. We're going to hang out, fellowship, sing a song, pray a prayer, <laughs> all that stuff. I feel like that's lyrics to a song too. Um, so, um, so yeah, so we want to show you how to do this. And I'm going to go ahead and be quiet because I've gone too long. But um, Jesus, you are gracious and you are kind. We love you. We need you. And I pray in Jesus' name that all of us together would emerge as spirit-filled, transformed, new kinds of people who look like you and are being shaped by you. We love you so much, Jesus. And I pray for everyone here who feels like they're hitting a wall, hitting the ceiling, stuck in the mud, whatever metaphor comes to mind, I pray, Jesus, that they would have hope and that they would see the goodness of God in their lives. In Jesus' name.